It's not a morning like the morning that they found him at the at the tomb. We're not in Israel. The weather is not exactly the same. But the very thing that happened that morning can have the same life-changing power in your life here today in Lynchburg in 2015 because of what took place on that, on that day. The resurrection of, of Christ from a, from a biblical standpoint is, is the pinnacle. I mean, we say the coming of Christ is like the, the hinge between the Old and the New Testament. It's the it's the, 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 the moment, the event, that, that everything in, in all of eternity and all of, of, of life on the earth turns on. And you can see that. I mean, everything builds up to, to the Messiah coming. And even after the silence of several hundred years, John the Baptist is sent to announce and, and to prepare. And, and then Jesus comes. But, but the pinnacle, you know... Is, is the resurrection. I mean, it builds up to the sinless life where Christ lays His life down. And, and we were talking even this past week of, uh, of the crucifixion on Good Friday. Good Friday's good because, uh, because of, of Christ and what He did. But, but Sunday's coming, right? I mean, the, you, you put the black on the, on the, on the cross on, on Good Friday and... and, and it's it's good because of the resurrection, I and mean, it's the pinnacle, and it's uh, it's what it's what Jesus came to, to to undo. I mean, the Bible says in Adam all die. I mean, Adam was placed on the earth with with innocence and and placed in the garden and and given the ability to uh, to, to obey God or or choose not to and chose not to, and from that point, death came. And, and you can just see the testimony. Even you read in Genesis, after the, the promises made in the genealogy, you know, and, and he died, and, and he died, and he died, and he died. And, I mean, and just on and on and on. And they, they have died all the way up till the point of, of Christ. And in Christ, the last Adam... Uh, all live, and the resurrection conquers, it undoes, it it overcomes the the curse uh, that that sin sin brings. From a biblical standpoint, it's the it's the pinnacle. It's from a historical standpoint, the resurrection of of Jesus is is unattested. I mean, even skeptics, even Secular scholars acknowledge that there was a man named Jesus who was crucified somewhere between 30 to 33 A.D. and his followers clearly believe that he rose from the dead. That's not just what the Bible declares, which it surely does, and that's my authority, but it's a historical fact. It's, you can apply the same rules... Of, of historical interpretation to Jesus that you can anything else, and you will find beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was a man who who lived and and was crucified, and that his followers believed and were even willing to lay down their life that he rose from the from the dead. The resurrection from a from a spiritual standpoint is about victory and about vindication. 
it's about victory because it proves the cross was not in vain. The, the, that death truly had no, no power over him and therefore over his followers, over you. And it's, it's not just victory, it's also vindication. Because through the resurrection, God declares that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. It's God's affirmation of who Jesus Christ was. It's, it's evidence that he has accepted the atonement offered through, through the cross. And it's proof that Jesus was the, was the Son of God. I mean, God is not going to raise a heretic from the dead. I mean, it's, it's evidence that, that just as the high priest came out of the holies of holies after he made the sacrifice and didn't die while he's in there, Jesus came out of the grave. And, and, and the sacrifice has been accepted, although this time not once a year, but, but once for all. The fact that without the resurrection, there would be no gospel. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. We, we read from that this morning. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is empty or vain, and your faith is also useless or worthless or empty or, or, or vain. I mean, you can believe in God, but, but you're still going to die and, and the grave is still going to overtake you and you're, you're going to stay there. You're not going to come out the other side. But if there is a resurrection, you can turn that around. Then Christ has been raised. Then our, then our preaching is not, is not empty. It's full of life-transforming power. And, and your faith is not useless or worthless, but, but it leads to eternal life. It, it transcends death. But that one verse, the Apostle Paul ties the resurrection and the entire message of the gospel and the outcome of our faith to the resurrection. In the resurrection, we're not just dealing with a miracle. We're not just dealing with a theological topic. We're, we're dealing with the gospel, the good news itself. And whether there's salvation that comes from what... You believe in what I believe and what the Bible declares. And in reading the Gospels this past week and in searching what I would preach to you this morning, what I found interesting with all of those things that I just told you, how it's the, the resurrection is the, is the pinnacle. It's, it, it's, it's documented in, in, in history. From, it, it shows both victory and vindication. It's... Without it, there is no gospel. There is no salvation. I mean, with something this weighty, this weighty as far as, as, as everything that the Bible teaches and everything you believe holds, whether that's true or not, what I found interesting in reading the Gospels was who Jesus commits that testimony to. I mean, something that significant... Something as significant as preaching the gospel to you this morning. I would have not committed that to me. I promise you that. There are much more abler people. And I just found it interesting who Jesus commits that testimony to. Now think about it. Something that important. Something that's so vital to faith, Jesus commits to a pretty motley crew, doesn't he? It's been said a bunch of a bunch of nobodies. Interesting. 
when you start looking at biographical sketches of the of the individuals that are there. You've got Simon the Zealot, Matthew the tax collector, the two guys that hated one another and were sworn enemies. You've got a fisherman. You've got brothers. You've got people that that can be used to stand up and proclaim the gospel at Pentecost without fear and without boldness. And that same person with the same vigor denies the Lord three times as he's standing there warming his hands by the, by the, by the fire. Some that seem educated, some that, that are not. And beyond, beyond that, out of this, this motley crew, this bunch of nobodies, in the resurrection, he appears after he, after he is risen from the dead to the least likely of that group and in their most defeated moments. Did you ever think about that? I mean, if Jesus wanted to affirm the resurrection was true, if the resurrection is as important as I just said it is, and it is, don't you think that he would appear to very powerful people? I mean, think about it. Maybe he should have appeared to, to Pilate. I mean, wouldn't that be significant? I mean, the guy that gave the order that washed his hands, the risen Christ appears to Pilate, and Pilate comes out and goes, what have I done? Look how, or he appears to the, to the high priest, the, the leaders. But, but he appears to his followers that are nobodies. And he appears out of that group of followers to the least likely to, to be listened to, it, and in their, their most defeated moments. And that's whenever, he, that's whenever he shows up. To present to them, what if, if it's not true, if it's not believed, there is no salvation. To present to them the, the pinnacle of, of all of, of God's revelation, the, the fact that, that Jesus, the Son of God, died and rose from the, from the dead. Let me show you what I mean. I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John in the 20th chapter. He appears to the least likely, and He appears in, in some of the most defeated moments. John chapter 20 begins with the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb or rolled away. And she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have, they have laid him. Now, now pay attention to her testimony. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So she's not saying, I came to the tomb and Jesus is risen from the dead. She's saying somebody took the body, and we don't know what happened to the body. Guys, you've got to come. This is a horrible thing. And Peter, therefore, went out, and the other disciple, 
and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping down and looking in, he saw linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and they saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around the head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in the place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. The disciples went away again to their, to their own homes. The evidence for the resurrection in, in what John says here is, is overwhelming. The tomb's empty, the stone's rolled away, the, gro- the gla- grave cloths are lying, the linen cloth by itself. You're going to hear angels give testimony that He is risen. There were many appearances to the disciples. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says he appears to 500 brethren at one time. And yet out of all of those appearances, John picks three. He picks three appearances to record in the gospel for a specific purpose. Look, if you would, at verse 30. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples. Now notice He says, these are not the only things that Jesus did. And He did it in the presence of His disciples. And I just said 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says He appeared up to 500 brethren at one time. And you can go to other Gospels. But John is saying, other things have been done, which are not written in this book, but these things... These three accounts, these three appearances are written so that you may believe, the reader or hearer of this letter, of this verse, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Do you see this this conundrum? That which is going to bring you life, that which that, that you have to hear to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is hanging on, on these three accounts that I'm going to show you this morning. And you're going to see that every single one of them are the, are, are the, the least of the, of the group in the most despairing of circumstances. He selects three. Mary Magdalene, a woman in despair. Ten disciples, cowering in defeat. And the last one is Thomas, who is a man full of fatalistic disbelief. And he does so to teach us something very purposeful, which we'll end the message with. So, if you want an outline, here it is. Three testimonies of the risen Christ so that you may believe. There are three here. And the first one is that found in verse 11, Jesus appears to a woman 
We know who the woman is, Mary Magdalene, in despair. In despair. Look at verse 11. Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. You find her in the same condition. She's so overwhelmed, she runs and gets the, the other disciples. Says they've taken him away and we don't know where we've laid him. And, and they come and you, John records what, what Peter and John see and, and their response. And they go back home to their own homes, and we'll pick up them in in the next scene. But Mary, she remains there at the tomb. She's outside of the tomb, and she's she's weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels sitting in white, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And she is oblivious to who they are or what they're doing there, she is in such despair. Now, what do we know about Mary? The least of the group in the the worst of circumstances. Mary was a faithful follower of Christ, and we know from the Bible that she had a special love for, for the Lord, noted in the Scriptures. She was also a woman with a very checkered past. She'd been saved out of a life of sin. She was the one, according to Luke 8 and Mark 16:9, Jesus cleansed her of seven demons. She was not an apostle. She was a woman, which would not have been good from a testimony standpoint in the, in the, the Jewish or Roman world. She had no prime place in society. She has no ongoing ministry in the church after this. She, was, she wasn't an apostle. And her de- devotion is, is truly remarkable. Once she's saved, she never leaves the Lord. She is present at the cross, even though the other disciples fled. She's here before daylight on the first day, the first opportunity after the Sabbath to come to the tomb. And she is the one that Jesus reveals Himself to upon His resurrection. She still calls Him Lord even after He is dead, not knowing that He's risen yet. We don't know why she didn't return with with, uh, John and Peter, probably because she's too overwhelmed with grief. Look at how she answers the the angels. John tells us the two angels are sitting there, and they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And that's the third time we've been told how she's how she's in despair, how she's weeping. And she said, Because they've taken away my Lord. Notice she's still saying they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. You know, I really tried to imagine what it felt like to be to be Mary. And frankly, I, I concluded it was impossible. Um, she's so broken that she doesn't even recognize anything abnormal about the angels or about that they're speaking to her. 
She's fixated on caring for the body of the Lord. She wants to know where it is. And you can tell from, uh, from her answer to the questions that she's just overcome. She's asked the same question twice about why she's weeping. And she's only focused on finding the body and caring for it. And then everything changes. Look at verse 14. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Now I don't think that that's because she's dumb or that she can't recognize who who He is. I think that the logical reason for why she couldn't recognize Him is because of what John's been trying to emphasize here, that she's so overwhelmed in, in grief, so despairing. You ever, been in a, you've, you ever been so emotionally overtaken by a situation that you become oblivious to anything that is around you? I mean, you're just, you're just fixed on, on this, this burden of, of your heart. And Jesus says to her in verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. You remember the moment you're a Christian when you heard God say your name? I heard about God for 24 years. I knew what the Bible taught me about Jesus, but there was one day, one moment in my life when I was sitting there under preaching and I heard God apply it to me. He spoke my name. He put my name in the blank. He didn't say that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He clearly says that in John, but He applied that specifically to me. For God so loved Brian that He gave His only begotten Son. And with one word, Jesus speaks Mary's name and she turned and said to Him, It's you! She pays no attention. The angels are speaking to her. She's oblivious that the risen Lord is standing before her. But when He calls her name, she instantly recognizes Him. And with the compassion and tone she had no doubt she'd heard before many times, she responded with overwhelming joy. Here's a woman in utter despair that Jesus appears to overcome. It's overcome with one word. Rabbi is a heightened form of, of rabbi. It, it meant my master, my teacher. It was reserved for the only for the most exalted ones. And, and with that, she, she falls at, her, at his feet and, and wraps, his, wraps her arms around him. Jesus says, don't cling to me. It's not the fact that he touches her, that she touches him, 
because he's going to encourage the other disciples to do that in just a moment. It's the idea of don't cling to me. And she's like, I got a hold of you and I'm not letting you go. And, and he's saying, no, it's, it's, I got to go. It's good that I go. I must ascend to the Father. If I don't ascend to the Father, then, then it's not good for you. Verse 17, Jesus, don't cling to me. For I have yet, not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren. And say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things to her. So there's no question. She no longer wants to know where they have taken Him. She's seen Him. And she's believing so that's the first one that John records for us. Let me show you the second one. Jesus appears to a group of defeated disciples. And again, be thinking, if you wanted to communicate, if you wanted to appear to, to someone about something so significant, would you have chosen these circumstances? And yet... These are the ones that Jesus chooses and that John records for the purpose that we read in verse 30. Jesus appears to a group of defeated disciples. Let's look at verse 19. Then the same day at evening, beginning the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. That's why they're there. Jesus came and stood in the midst. Now here's the disciples. They're together. They're indoors. And they have it locked out of fear. It's the same evening. They're all gathered, minus Thomas. And you can imagine that they probably thought at any moment the, the authorities would come and take them away just like, just like the Lord. And after what they have seen and heard about, you can't blame them. I would, I would probably be in the same place, doing the same thing. And Jesus even had warned them that they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter. They're huddled together and unsure and timid and fearful. But probably wondering. I mean, Peter and John told them that the tomb was empty. Mary has now come back and said that she saw the Lord Himself. And you probably imagine it's disconcerting. I mean, I mean, they wanted to believe. Things to believe. They knew the ones who'd given, their, given them the testimony. They were their friends. And, and yet, could they believe such a thing? And here you find them. And this is where Jesus appears. He appears in their midst in verse 19. And he says, Peace be with you. And he said, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now watch this transformation. They're all huddled together for fear. Jesus says, Peace. And he shows them and then they were glad. You see that progression? Of emotion. John's very specific here in verse 20. He showed 
them both his hands and his side where he was pierced. And they saw and they rejoiced. And look at verse 21. Look at what Jesus does next. He does the same thing that he does with Mary. Verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father, and my God, and your God. Look at what Jesus does here with this group of defeated disciples in verse 21. So Jesus says to them again, Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, symbolically. If you forgive the sins of any, if you proclaim the forgiveness of sins, they will be forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when, when Jesus came. Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he reminds them of the commission. He sends them. It's the closest that John comes to a great commission statement in the Gospel of John. Just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Go testify of what I am telling you here. You defeated group of disciples that I have now given peace to. Proclaim the same message. That forgiveness of sins can can be obtained in in my name. Clearly, he's not saying here that the disciples had the ability to declare that sins were forgiven. Mark 2, 7 says that no one can forgive sin but God, but that's the point. They have the message. They have a message that they can tell men the greatest news there ever was that their sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ because of his death and because of his resurrection. And they're being sent to proclaim that message from defeated to proclaimers of victory. A woman who is in the midst of despair to a woman who is filled with, with joy and declares to the disciples that she had seen the Lord and He had spoken things to her. Look at their profession. Verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, that's the disciples that we just learned about, we have seen the Lord. They did exactly what, what Mary did. They got the same commission that Mary got, and they followed through on that commission. We believe. We've seen the Lord. It was Jesus. He was really here. He did rise from the dead. We're, we're, we're giving you that testimony. Mary said, I've seen the Lord. They said, we have seen the Lord. Their hearts are full and their mouths spoken. And then John records for us the, the third person here. He appears to a disbelieving follower. I really struggled with the words to put in that last point. He appears to a disbelieving follower because Thomas is complex. I'm going to show you in a moment. 
we give Thomas a really bad rap. He's called Doubting Thomas. And, and we say, oh, man, I wouldn't have done that what Thomas, you know, Thomas did. And he's not just disbelieving. He, he's to the point where he's fatalistic. I mean, he's so discouraged that, that he's just like, it doesn't matter. Whatever. You ever been there? Look at what he says in verse 25. The other disciples said, Therefore we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, I mean, think about his response here. Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I mean, we've seen the Lord. Who cares? I mean... Uh, Great. You know what I believe? I believe whenever I see his hands and his side and I'm able to touch it. That's whenever I will believe. Now go away and do whatever else you're doing because I'm going to go back to sucking on a lemon and being despondent about the situation. That's kind of the idea that I get from, from Thomas here. Unless I see his hands and run my fingers in the nail holes, I definitely will not believe. This is, this is the ume in the Greek, the strongest negation possible. I will not believe. I, I won't. I'm going to choose not to. It's setting my face to refuse to believe. So let's say it's an idea of fatalistic. Peter and John see the empty tomb questionable whether they believe in the resurrection there or not because they don't really say anything or do anything about it. Do they believe Mary or do they believe the resurrection? Mary, though, sees the Lord, speaks to him and believes. The disciples see the Lord, his wounds, and believe. But Thomas, unless I see, and he proves to me beyond a shadow of a doubt by me putting my finger Into his wounds, I'll refuse. As a man full of disbelief. He's so down that he refuses. He's so down, he says, what's the use? And Thomas, as I said, is not a bad guy. He's a faithful disciple. He's described by, by some as the you know, as the, the Eeyore disciple. You know Eeyore, Winnie the Pooh? Yeah. I don't know. But it's clear Thomas is faithful. He's labeled as the eternal pessimist, but don't doubt his devotion. It was his devotion to the Lord that I think led to his disbelief, led him to this place. He was so devoted to the Lord that whenever he had his faith in the wrong thing and in the wrong place, when that was dashed, just as devoted as he was, everything fell off the table. And here he is. Back in John eleven sixteen, when Jesus was headed back to Jerusalem and into danger at the raising of Lazarus, Thomas says, let's go die with him. Well, if he's going to die and we might as well die too. And everything 
is, is invested in the life of Christ. And Jesus is going to show him that everything not only needs to be invested in my life, but it needs to be invested in my resurrection. The devotion mixed with despondency, I think is what you see here. The Lord's died. Thomas is so despondent, he won't allow himself to do anything other than I give up. Now watch the encounter. Verse 26. After eight days, so many days, and those many days Thomas remained in the position miserable while the other disciples had peace. Same situation. Shut doors. Same entry point. He simply appears in their midst. Different address. He speaks directly to Thomas. You talk about snapping to attention, huh? Not only does Jesus show up in the midst, He doesn't pay attention to anybody else in the room and He speaks in your name. Yes, Lord. After eight days, Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in their midst, and says, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. The demands of Thomas were met with commands from Christ. Thomas says, Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into the side, I will not believe. Jesus says, there's a command for each one. Unless I see his hands, Jesus said, see my hands. Look at my hands. And put my finger into the place of the nails. Reach here your finger. And put my hand into his side, and bring your hand and put it into my side. I definitely will not believe and no longer be unbelieving, but believing. These are all imperatives. They're commands. Be not apistos, but be pistos. Be be not without faith. Exercise it. Look at Thomas's profession. You know it well. Verse 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. He goes from despondent to declaring that Jesus is not just His Lord and God, but He is truly risen from the dead. It's, a, it's an interesting sentence if you looked at it in the original because there are two subjects and the rest of the sentence are admitted. It's like, my Lord, my God. It's like saying, my Lord and my God is truly risen from the dead. Either he can't get the rest of it out or, or he's trying to emphasize it to the point that that's all he says. You are the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope and the promises. You are God. That's what he says. And with that statement, John concludes the gospel. And brings us back to the place that it began. You remember how John began in one woman? In the beginning was the Word. 
He begins with the deity of Christ. And look at how he ends his gospel. My Lord and my God, the deity of Christ. Jesus is God. And he came and did everything in between. The gospel is an invitation. And it's also a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's an invitation. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's also a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we'll be judged one day on what we've done with Christ. Look at Thomas's response in verse 29. Or Jesus' response to Thomas. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me and you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's nothing wrong with Thomas's testimony or his faith. Jesus was gracious to, to help this disciple be pulled out of despair. But he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John says in verse 30 that he chooses these three least of these in the least likely circumstances to give a testimony. They are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the of God and that believing you may have life in in his name. You know why I think John chooses us these three? Because the gospel is for those despairing in sin, for those defeated in the midst of life, for those disbelieving and despondent in heart. The gospel makes no sense to people who have no sense of their sin. The gospel makes no sense to those who are full. The gospel makes no sense to those who are on top of the world. But the gospel makes all sense to people who mourn, blessed are those who mourn, those who hunger. The gospel is for those despairing, defeated, disbelieving. And Jesus would say, hear my word and believe. And the gospel transforms those in despair to joyful declarers. Mary goes from despair to declaring that she'd seen the Lord. The gospel transforms those defeated just like the disciples to people who are victor, victorious proclaimers. And the gospel transforms those disbelieving into faith-filled testifiers. Hear the word of Christ. Believe that it's true. And that believing you may have life in His name. I want you to bow your heads for a moment.
It's your opportunity to respond to the Word. These are written. These are preached. These are proclaimed to you today so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that His message is to you. Those who are in deep grief and despair, even to the point that they can't even pay attention to the rest of the world around them. This message comes to you who are defeated, discouraged, no purpose, or your hopes are dashed. This message comes to you who have given up. You get to the point where you say, what's the use? I really don't even care. And John writes specifically about those people to say to you, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And that believing on Him, you might have life in His name. And He can take you in whatever position or condition you're in, and He can turn you into somebody who's joyful, victorious, and someone who can be used to even close out the gospel. (laughs) My Lord and my God. I don't know your life. I don't know where you're at. But I can tell you with all confidence exactly what Jesus said to the disciples here. I proclaim to you that Jesus Christ can forgive your sins and if you will confess and repent and turn to Him, they will be forgiven. With all confidence, I declare that to you. And I declare to you with the same confidence the retention of sin that if you refuse to believe upon Jesus Christ, you remain in your sins, and those sins you'll face in the judgment one day. Why not turn to Jesus? He loves you. He's already paid it all. What you need to do is repent and believe in whatever condition you're in, and He'll not turn you away. Father, as we just bow before You, and I am living proof that You use the least, that You use even the fumbling and the bumbling, those who are not seeking You, those who are not... wouldn't make much of anything. But You choose to use people like that anyway. And I'm thankful that You do. I pray, Father, that You would would show those here this morning that might be Christians that are struggling that, that You care. Care even through these testimonies of these three people. And that they don't have to remain there or they won't remain in that position forever. They can still be used. And I pray, Father, even this morning for those who have never repented and believed that today would be the day just as they are that they would surrender themselves to Jesus and be transformed. It's in His name I ask it. Amen.
You stand, we're going to sing together. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a testimony in this song. I know it's Easter. You've come to church. If you come and you have a special service, I know you may be visiting. I know you may be visiting from out of town and and family. I know there's all of those things going on, but I'm going to be here after the service. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to take you in the Bible. I'd love to show you my Savior. I'd love to take the words of God and allow the Spirit to take His words and and plant faith in your heart that He can forgive you just like He forgave me and millions and countless others. After we sing, if you want to do that, I don't think you'll regret it. Let's sing. Hope you have a uh, wonderful rest of the of the day. Happy Resurrection Day, and you enjoy the time with uh, with your families. And um, 
I'll be praying for you, and we'll see you next week. Again, I'll be up here, right here. I'm not going anywhere. All right, you're dismissed. <laughs>